All right, you ready for the preaching of the word? Here we go. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 10. We started a series last week called Above All. And uh, we're going we're gonna to learn from, from this church what not to do. And we're going to learn what to do. And so it's a tremendous church that Paul planted on his missionary journey. Um, I encourage you to read First and Second Corinthians. I also encourage you to read the book of Acts. You'll see Paul's journey um, as, he, as he plants church and churches. And uh, one of the churches that he planted was Corinthians. So this is what Paul says in the 10th verse of chapter 1. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another and what you say, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. That's, that's an incredible task. He's like, I, I'm, I'm challenging you that all of you need to speak the same language. And not only that, there's no division among you. And on top of that, you need to be perfectly united in mind and thought. Is this even possible? I think it is. After we learn what Paul uh, continues to write to the church of Corinth. <clears throat> Verse 17 in the same chapter says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So now we start seeing him unfold his, his idea of how to be unified. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. He gets that out of Isaiah, Paul does. He says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jesus demand, excuse me, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's amazing. That's amazing. He says, listen, the Jews, they need proof. The Greeks, they need to be persuaded with intellect, but neither did I do both. What I did do is preach Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we'll unpack that as, as, as we go on this afternoon. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of no, noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast because of boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, him meaning God, who was who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the 
the Lord. Well, that's a lot going on there. Hopefully we're going to unpack it and, and see what we learn from, from Paul today. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that we're going to come together and we're going to do our best as, as your word teaches us to be perfectly united in mind and thought. God, that we would speak the same language, that we would have the same spirit, Lord God, that, that raised Christ from the dead, quicken our mortal bodies. Lord, that same spirit will bring unity and harmony among the body of Christ. We thank you. We give you the glory and the honor. In your holy name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Have you ever played the communication game? Usually employers do it to, to teach communication skills. And, and here's, here's how it goes. You get 10 people and you put them in a line. And you tell the first person a story. You tell them, you give them a message. And by the time the 10th person receives that message, they're to tell you what the first person said. I'm sure we've all played that game before, whether in some type of gathering, but it's used to build communication skills. It's used by employers to build, uh, to teach the idea, uh, the importance of, of what one person says and how that meaning is communicated throughout the entire organization. How many of you know that when communication breaks down, everything breaks down? Everything breaks down. Usually, by the time you get to the 10th person, the message is never the same. Never the same. It doesn't even start the same. It doesn't even sound like the original message that was given. It's always different. And so the point is that whenever we do not have effective communication as a group of people, whether it be an organization, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a church, things begin to fall apart. Things, things don't, don't operate the way they should operate. Relationships diminish. Organizations, they begin to self-destruct. Have you ever heard that phrase, Houston, we have a problem? You know, it's from the old movie, The Apollo. And, and it's the idea when, when the communications went down, they had a problem. Paul's, he's, he's waving the red flag. He's like, here, here are all the signs there's these divisions among you. People aren't getting along. People want to follow Apollos. People want to follow Paul. People want to follow uh, Peter. But, but what's, what's the issue? What's going on? And he tells us in verse 10, he says, he says this, that I want you all to agree. I want you all to speak the same language. And when communication lines break down, everything begins to come unhinged. Everything. Imagine being in a relationship where you didn't talk to the person. You would never know what they think or how they feel. You would never know their, their, their ideology about life, their worldviews, their biblical views. It's just like you're just there in, in each other's presence knowing nothing. Or imagine you're part of a, conver, a, a relationship where only one person's always talking and you never get a word in. That's the idea of, of communication breakdown. The, and, and then when you don't listen actively, there, there's, there's all kinds of issues that arise in a relationship. And we've all worked for an organization where the communication has been, has been really struggling. And, and when that happens, it's like on every level, things are just falling apart. Well, that's what's happening to the church. They're not communicating the same thing. They're not talking the same language. 
give you a little recap of last week. We talked about the problem of leadership. Paul had this, he's teaching him, he's like, listen, it doesn't matter if you follow Apollos, it doesn't matter if you follow Peter, it doesn't matter if you follow Paul. What matters is that you go to a church or you be part of an organization that preaches Christ crucified. So here's his point. His point is like, it doesn't matter where you go. If you like to be part of a group that's very sophisticated and, and intellectual, that's good. Find that church for you. If you like to be part of a church that's more, you know, lively like Peter and you're full of passion and, uh, you know, like on the day of Pentecost, good. Find that church for you. If you like to, to just, just to kind of sit and just, you know, have this conversation type atmosphere, good. Find that church for you. That's Paul's point. He's like, it doesn't matter where you go because we're all servants. We're all servants. You're, you're either going to water or you're going to plant. But it's God that causes the increase. So here's the point he's making. He's like, whatever church you pick, they need to preach the entire gospel. If they're not preaching the entire gospel, well, then it's not the church for you. If LFA ceases to preach the entire gospel, if we, if we, continue, if we start watering down the message of the cross, then LFA should not be the church for you. That's his point. So how do we get to, the, how do we get to this, this position where we're all speaking the same language? And what language are we talking? Well, a great story out of, out of the book of Genesis is, is called the, the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Out of the 11th chapter of Genesis, there's this city that wants to build a, a, a strong fortified city, a group of people that want to build a strong city. And they want to build a tower that reaches the heavens. And it's not to reach the heavens, but it's to give the image to the surrounding enemies that they are fortified and they're strong and they're, they're, they're a group to be reckoned with. But here's what's interesting about this, about this story is that, and I'll just read it to you. In Genesis eleven six, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, meaning build the city, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and, con and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. This is why it's called Babel because they excuse me, there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Here's, here's, here's the takeaway. And, it, and it's straight from, from God's word, right? It's like, he says, he says, because they're able to communicate, because they speak the same language, because they're able to, to have the same idea and the same goals, there's nothing that they can't do. Did you catch that? Let's go back to it. Go back to it. it says, he says, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. That phrase is, is hinging on the ability to communicate. Imagine. Imagine if we came together and we had the same language. We had the same goals. We had the same heart, the same passion 
to, to reach 10% of our city, to reach the loss of Laredo, to be a beacon for our city, to be an ambulance or whatever, a hospital for the sick and the hurting. Imagine if we had that same heart, that same thought, the same communication. God says that there's nothing that we could not accomplish if we're all speaking the same language. But because he did not want them to succeed, what does he do? He confuses their language. He gives, this is where the birth of, 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 of languages happens. And, and, and we have so many different languages all over the earth and so many different dialects, but it happens at this moment right here at the Tower of Babel. And the word Babel in Hebrew means confusion. So God brings confusion to the language of humanity so that they would not accomplish what they had set their hearts out to accomplish. Now, how much more would the enemy use that same principle among the people of God to bring confusion among our communication about God? That's why we have so many fractions. That's why we have so many churches, right? Because everyone has their idea of what church should be or how, how the message should be communicated or the doctrines that we should believe. And we're like, I'm not going to follow that, so we're going to break off. And if you've ever studied the history of churches, it's a fascinating case study. You have all these churches through the centuries, just fractions after fractions because someone believes something different. And Paul's like, his point is like, we should not do that. And so I, I find it interesting that I think that we can actually become people that spiritually babble. Have you ever been told that you're, that, you've, that you're babbling? You ever been told, like, hey, stop, like, just take a breath real quick, man, you're babbling. Like, words are coming out of your mouth. You're saying something, but it means nothing. It's confusion. That's, that's what this is. Sometimes I think the church gets into a spiritual babble that we don't even realize it. We, we start speaking our spiritual language trying to win the loss and and they don't understand a single thing we're saying we are spiritually babbling they're like i don't know what that means what do you mean by covenant what do you mean by blood of jesus washing your sins what do you what do you mean by right we but we're spiritually babbling because they don't understand us this is what paul says about speaking in tongues right it's the whole idea of, of, of speaking intelligent words in the 14th chapter of the same book that we're studying out of corinthians he says listen I'd rather you speak 10 intelligent words than to speak in tongues. Because no one understands you when you speak in tongues, only you and the Spirit and God. But if you speak 10 intelligent words, then you might have an opportunity to win someone. That's the point. Is that if we come together as a church and we speak 10 intelligent words, we might have the opportunity to win some souls. We might have the opportunity to grow the kingdom of God while we wait for the return of our Savior. Let's stop spiritually babbling. Let's stop, let's stop not making sense to, to, the, to the community at large. Let, let's stop using words and phrases that, that a, a person who does not attend church will not understand. Let's start using real life phrases. Because if we become unified, Listen, we, we can evangelize the lost. We can reach 10% of our city. I really believe that. I really believe. It's been a vision of mine since 
God has planted me here. It's just reaching 10% of the city. I have yet to see it come to fruition. I, I, we've seen great movements and growth in our church, and we've seen plateaus, we've seen d- declines. We're kind, of, we're kind of like every other church. We're up and down. It's like, it's like we need to get to a point where we can start seeing some growth and some momentum as far as people attending so that we know that we're effectively reaching our community. And one of the ways that's going to happen is if we stop having fractions among us, we stop having divisions among us. And I'm not just talking about LFA. I'm talking about the community of God in Laredo. So you've heard me say it before, and I'm going to say it again to you as your pastor. As as LFA members, our goal is to love that's our goal is to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our might, all of our, all of our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. So what that means is we're not going to talk bad about other churches in our community. What that means is we're going to pray for other churches in our community. What that means is we're going to support your friends or your family members that go to different churches in our community. That's great, and we pray for them. We want them to increase. We want them to grow. We want God to do tremendous things among them. I tell you what, we will hinder the move of God if we are being used by the enemy or even our own flesh if we talk bad about people. That's part of being unified. Even if they don't come to our church, they're still part of the body of Christ. If they believe in Jesus Christ, virgin birth, sinless, died on the cross, God raised him from the dead on the third day, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will soon return. If they believe that, then we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we ought not talk about bad about them. Amen? That's, that's Paul's word to us. As we move forward in his, in his thought of, of keeping unity, here's, here's the main point that I think he uses throughout his entire letter on, on evidence on how we should keep unity. And he uses it in his other letters, his other writings, like Ephesians and Thessalonians and, and Colossians. It's, it's the expression of God's wisdom and power. It's the first point. The expression of God's wisdom and power. Paul, when you read the, the book of Corinthians, he turns our, our minds, he turns the minds of his readers to the source of their union. He says, listen, I want you to be perfectly united in mind and thought, but I'm going to tell you how you're going to be perfectly united. I'm going to tell you how you're going to keep the unity. It's the cross. It's the cross. And And the cross, what God does is he displays the most significant expression of wisdom and power to the world by way of the cross. I need that to to settle in. I need it to settle in because I, I, I need you to know that the only way we are going to be unified, the only way that we're going to have the same perfect mind and thought unification, it's going to be on on one thing, and that's the cross. That's the cross. Corinthians 1.18 says this, says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are, believe, who are being saved, it's the power 
of God. It's the power of God. Verse 22 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, those are the born again people, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He preaches Christ crucified. He preaches Christ is the power of God. And he preaches that Christ is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. If there's one thing that we will not negotiate on, church, if there's one thing that we will not move from, if there's one thing that I will always stand by, it is the message of the cross. It's the message of the cross. It's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God through Christ Jesus. If there's anything that we're going to be unified on, we need to be unified on this point here. If we cannot agree on the message of the cross, then, then we're going to have challenges in being unified. Challenges. I'm, I'm not talking about other doctrines that, that, that aren't the foundation of our, of our journey with God. I'm not talking about the cross. For example, speaking in tongues. We can differ on that. But we can't differ on the cross. Divine healing. You might not feel that divine healing's for today. I might feel it's for today. But we can't differ on the cross. The cross is, is the foundation of everything that we are as born-again believers. And so why was, why was the cross... Why was it foolishness? Why was it what Paul has said it was? The message seems foolish because it's simple. It is simple. And Paul even talks about it. He says, listen, when I preach, I don't preach with words of eloquence or wisdom from this world. I'm talking simple message that Jesus Christ died for you and me so that we can be reconciled to the Father. That's simple. He says there's power in that. That's why it was foolishness, because the Greeks were looking for philosophy. They were stuck on Socrates and Plato and, and Aristotle. They wanted lofty ideas of life, and they wanted what the meaning of life was. And Christ, is he the meaning of life? They wanted those type of ideas, and that's not what Christ came to do. No, not at all. The Jews needed a sign. They wanted a Messiah that was going to be strong, and, and he was going to overtake the the. the, the the Roman Empire, that's what, he was, that's what they were wanting, but the message was too simple. That's why it was foolish. The message appears foolish because compared to worldly wisdom, it makes no sense. Why in the world would someone want to follow a savior, a king, a, a, a ruler who hangs on a cross, who has no kingdom? In, in the earthly realm, it has no teeth for wisdom. It has no teeth for, for the intellectuals. It's like, that makes no sense. I wouldn't follow someone who, who displays weakness but calls himself the son of God. 
It's the message of the cross is foolish because it wasn't relevant to them. It was simple. It made no sense. It wasn't relevant to them. The Jews didn't, didn't want it because it had no signs. The, the Greeks didn't want it because it wasn't lofty enough. It kind of sounds like today. It kind of sounds like, like the world that we live in today. We've been told by, by politicians that the Bible is antiquated, that the Bible is a, is a book of old days and old times, and, and it's not for today. It's not modern enough. The Bible, it, it, it suppresses women. The Bible is, 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 is ruthless and, and vicious towards slaves. It's like you can, you can Google it and you can find all the politicians that do not support biblical values. Just like the Jews and the Gentiles didn't. It's foolishness. It makes no sense to them. It's not relevant to their life. And so, why would I follow it? And those who don't want to serve God stubbornly reject it. They, they reject the message of the cross. They don't want to follow God. They want to live their own life. They want to have control of their own life. Because if you follow biblical values, <laughs> Jesus says your life is not your own. You don't get to decide what you do or don't do. You don't get to treat people any way you want to treat them. You don't get to be, <laughs> you know, the person that you want to be. You have to become more like Christ. So people don't want to follow the Bible. They don't want to follow scripture. They don't want, they don't want someone telling them what to do or not do. They want to live their life. So they stubbornly reject it. They, they rebel against it. They rather live without biblical values. In fact, if we just, if we just make it a little bit more hip to today's vernacular, we, we use the language like you do you and I'll do me. And we'll be good. That's how, that's how it works. Right? Stay in, stay in your lane, and I'll stay in my lane. We don't need to cross. But the moment you come in my lane, you violated my rights. Now we have issues. That's, that's the philosophy of the world. The Bible doesn't teach us that. In fact, the Bible teaches us that our lanes are going to intersect every part of the journey. That we're to bear with one another. That we're to love one another. That we're to support one another. That iron sharpens iron so one man's life sharpens another man's life. That there's this, there's this constant intersection. It's not my lane, your lane. It's not me doing me and you doing you. No, it's like, it's like we're in each other's life intimately. I'm to love God, and I'm to love people. That's the expression of God's wisdom and power through Christ. The contrast of that, the contrast of, of people wanting to do their own things is what Paul says. He says, for those who are being saved, the message of the cross is the very expression of God's power. God's power is the very expression. And it doesn't, when he uses the word power, it's, it's not the same word as dunamis as, as, as in the book of Acts when he says, listen, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power to be my witnesses. It's a different type of power. This word is more translated as, as, as transformation. 
It's transformation. Because if it's just hinging on power, on the, the miracles and the wonders of, of, of the supernatural, well, then we're going to have trouble. We're going to have trouble because, because not every church functions in the wonders and the supernatural of the Holy Spirit. No. The power is resonating in a transformed life. That's what he's telling the church of Corinth. If you read the letter, you'll see. And if you even read Galatians, he'll tell you in Galatians, like you were running the race so well. Who has beseeched you that you have, you have fallen away from Christ? He's like, you've been transformed. Why would you give up what you have to follow some weird doctrine taught by devils or angels? He's like, if it's taught by angels or devils or someone else, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ is, 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 is twisted. He says, let those people be a curse. You see, the power is, is in our life. The power is how we live. When you and I are transformed individuals, that's a demonstration of God's power working through us. But when we are, when we are not allowing God to transform us, then, then there's not that power. Then the cross and the message of the cross is foolishness. In other words, we don't want to obey the cross. We don't want to obey the work that was done on the cross. And Paul talks about this to Timothy. He says, Timothy, listen, in the last days, in his second letter, third chapter, he says, in the last days, people are going to be lovers of themselves. They're going to be disobedient to their parents. They're going to love pleasure rather than good. They're going to love money. They're going to be boastful and proud. They're going to be unforgiving they're going to be rash and they're going to be full of anger and hatred. He's like, these are the people that, that's, that's going to be living in the last days, Timothy. He's, and here's, here's the scary part. He says, these people have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. What power are they denying? The very power that I was talking to you about, transformation. They're like, I'm going to pretend to be a Christian I'm going to do all the Christian things. I'm going to say all the Christian phrases. I'm going to participate in, in Christian um, activities, church. But I'm not going to let the gospel transform me. I'm still going to live my life. I'm still going to rebel against God. I'm, I'm still going to make decisions for my life, not consulting God. I'm going to look like a Christian, but I'm going to deny its power, the power of transformation. You see, the cross is the universal common ground for all born-again believers. When we come to the cross, when you and I come to the cross, it's, it's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you're poor or rich. It, it doesn't matter your, your political stance. Whatever that is, when we come to the cross, the cross is a equalizer. We are all the same. We are all the same. And what, and what is that? Well, that's, that's what Paul says. We've all come short of the glory of God. We've all come short of the glory of God. We've all have sinned. And for the wages of sin is death. And, but the gift of God is eternal life. So what Paul's saying is that every one of us 
every one of us before the cross, before we accept Jesus Christ, we are exactly the same. That we are going to spend eternity without God. That our life is just, it's just but a vapor. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And, and whatever we do with our life here on earth, when we die, it is the end. But the cross changes that. The cross says it doesn't end. But you continue and you live in eternity with God. That's the cross. The work of the cross unites us with Christ and with each other. If Christ doesn't die on the cross, then we are never reconciled back to God. We are never given the opportunity to come into his presence. We are never given the, the opportunity to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We are never given the opportunity if Christ doesn't do the work on the cross. The work on the cross cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. Because of what Christ does on the cross, you and I are washed, as the Bible would say. It's this analogy, this image of, of, of taking all the dirt in our life and just washing it away. In fact, it uses this phrase as white as snow. Listen, it's, it's us being cleansed. One of the most gratifying things for me, it's, 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 it's really simple. It's kind of silly almost, but it's like, it's like when you take your truck mudding, right, and you go four-wheeling, and, and, and when you get home and your truck's just plastered with mud, and, and then you get your water hose, and you just start power washing it, and all the mud just falls off and falls, you know, falls off from the wheels, and it just, it's just falling. You're like, that's cool. That's, for me, it's a cool image, right? Or, or like a big rainstorm, and you can smell the rain, the freshness, and, and the rain is just coming powerfully down, and it's just like washing the streets. It's the image. It's the image of the Holy Spirit washing you because of the work on the cross, all the dirt in your life, all the things that we've done, all the people we've heard, all the people, all the things we've said about people, all the, all the times we've disobeyed God and we've, we've gone our own way. When you come to the cross, it washes it. It cleanses you. It sets you free. It's the great equalizer. It's the, it's the, it's the expression of God's wisdom and his power. The work of the cross gives us hope in a future. Like because of the cross, I have a hope that when I die, that I'm going to be resurrected with Christ. Because of the cross. Because I know that he died and God resurrected him. That gives me hope to know that when I die, he's going to resurrect me. I'm not sure what's going on here. It's the cross. It's the work of the cross. Paul says to the church of, of Colossians, he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. When we were dead, he forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross what he did. And having disarmed the power and authorities, he 
made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross. Church, if there's any message that we can agree upon, it's what the work of the cross has done to you and to me. It has transformed us. It has washed us clean from all of our unrighteousness. It has given us access to the throne room of heaven. Paul's point is, he's saying this. He's saying, wherever the cross is preached, the wisdom of man cannot stand. Wherever the cross is preached, the wisdom of man cannot stand. Cannot stand. For instance, revelation about God is given, us, given to us through the Bible. Man would have no revelation, Paul says. We would have no revelation of God without God. Let that sink in. That's how foolish we are. That's how foolish we are. We would have no revelation of who God is without God. If God did not expose himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ, then we would not know who God is. No matter how smart we think we are. And, and, and humanity's pretty, we're pretty awesome. You start thinking about some of the things that we've done as, as, as human beings. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But you can take the smartest human being, you can take the smartest group of people and put them in the room, and God's saying, your wisdom is foolishness. It's absolutely foolishness when it's, when it's pushed against the cross because the cross is God's wisdom and his power, the work on the cross. Here's the second point, and we're going to be done. Is he... His choice of weak vessels. So not only does Paul say, listen, this is how we're going to be unified. We're going to be unified because we're going to agree upon the message of the cross. This is what the message of the cross does. It transforms our lives. We are not the same. Because of the cross, we've been cleansed. Because of the cross, we've been united with, with God and Christ and one another. Because of the cross, we have a future. We have a hope. All that we agree upon because of the cross. That's how we come together perfectly in thought and mind. And so here's the second part of that argument that he brings. He says, he says the cross is the, is the power and the wisdom of God, but God chooses weak things and foolish things to confound the wise. He chooses it. And it's amazing when you think about this, this thought and how God has has really used weak vessels throughout the century. So how does he do this? How does, how does he get the church to think about who they were? He does it in verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So he's pausing for a moment. He's like, I, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about where you were and who you were. Think about your character. Think about your life. Think about, think about, 
what was going on in life when you got saved. I think it's a great exercise for faith. I think, I think sometimes we, we serve God for so long. Um, many, many moons ago, I, I, preached, I preached the message, one of the deadliest things for a Christian is longevity, is longevity. Because we get so, so familiar with God. We get so accustomed to the things of God and to, and to how church is that it lulls us into an apathy. It lulls us into, into just this, this quiet, passive church. Longevity. It has its pluses. But in Christianity, it could be, it could be a really big challenge for us. Well, you know, those of you that have been married for at least 10 years or more, Y'all are quiet. How many of you have been married for 10 years or more? Raise your hand. Uh-huh. You've been low to sleep. We could. It's easy. It's easy to take for granted. It's easy to, to just assume, right? It's no different with God in our relationship with God. He says, I need you to think about where you were when God found you. We didn't find God. I know people say that sometimes, like, well, I was here when I found God. No, no, no. God was never lost. You're the lost one. I'm the lost one. The Bible is very clear, and we read it today, that it's because of him. Him who? Because of God that we have Christ as his power and his wisdom. It's because of God that, the, that he woos us to his presence. It's, it's because of God that we have Christ. John 3.16, the most famous scripture of all scriptures, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish. It's because of him, his love for us. And he's like, he's like I want you to be reminded where you were, the kind of person you were. When you think about your life, and, and, and the road that you've traveled, can you say God's been so good? Oh my goodness. He's been so good. Because we would be a mess. We're a mess now. Imagine what our life is like without God. He says, I need you to think about it. Because not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Just think about it. Weak things. A great illustration of this is out of Luke 7. I love this story. Luke 7 is a story about Jesus going into Simon's house with his disciples. And, and this lady with an alabaster jar comes with her oil and she breaks the jar and she anoints Jesus and she and she just kisses Jesus's feet and she just she's just extravagant with her love towards Jesus and and Simon was not 
with it. He didn't like what was going on. He was wanting to remove her, but Jesus told them to leave her alone. Now, some theologians say that's Mary Magdalene and the story of Mary Magdalene. She was a prostitute. She was the one sleeping with everybody's husband and she, and even single men. She was just, she was just that type of person in the city. And, um, and she had this, she had this, this connection with Jesus that transformed her life. And so she wanted to show her love. And this is, and so I pick up the story in the 41st verse. It says, two people. So Simon, Simon's upset, but Jesus says, I'm going to handle this situation with this story. He tells Simon, he says, Simon, there's two people who owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 and the other owed 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he, the money lender, forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. He says, you have judged correctly. Then in, in verse 40, 44, he says, then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I come into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. My feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. This is an amazing story of what Paul is trying to teach to the church of Corinth, how God uses weak things to confound the wise. Because in the story, two things are present, a weak woman and a very strong, powerful man, Simon. The image, there's this vessel who has nothing to offer but perfume and tears and kisses. And there's this rich guy who has everything to offer Jesus, the house, the food, the, 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 the servants, everything at his fingertips. There's this, there's this juxtaposing positions with these two individuals. And Jesus, he says, he says, listen, Simon, the reason she loves more is because she's been forgiven for more. And that's, that's a little interesting because, because there's some people in life that have had a good life. Some people have been raised in, in a Christian home. They've been raised in a Christian home. Some, the worst thing they've probably done is break curfew or maybe got drunk a time or two and come home to mom, you know. Maybe they, maybe they smoked a joint or something. You know, it's kind of like the worst thing they've done. Maybe they stole some money from their wallet, from mom's wallet or dad's wallet. You're like, those are, those are forgivable offense, offenses. And then you take another life who hasn't had it so easy and whose mom and dad has left them or abandoned them and who's lived on the streets or who's, you know, they've had to become street smart to get through life and they barely get through high school and, and this person is just, they, they've done some, some horrific sins. So the person who has been good and had a good life 
Is Jesus saying that they're not going to love deep because they don't, have, they don't have a lot of dirt in their life? They don't have a lot of baggage? No, that's not what he's saying at all. In fact, it's very interesting what he says here. And, and, and what he's saying is this. It's, it's, not, it's not that the person who had a good life isn't going to love deep. What he's saying is the person who shows their need for God is going to be forgiven much. And because they're forgiven much, they're going to love much. So the person who owes $50 in debt can realize their debt was just as much as the $500 debt because they had nothing to pay it. And that person who owed $50 can love just as much as the person who owed $500. And Jesus is telling Simon, and, and it's there in the story when you unpack it. He's like, listen, it's from the moment I came in, you didn't give me water. But her tears have, have wet my feet and she's dried it with her hair. You didn't, you didn't give me oil, but she's anointed my feet. You didn't, you didn't kiss me, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she's walked in. He says, in this phrase, you, if you miss it, then you miss the point of what Jesus is saying. He says this. He says, as her great love has shown because she demonstrated her need for God, whether it was $50 or $500, because she demonstrated her need for God, there was, she understands the magnitude in which she was forgiven. It doesn't matter if I stole a pack of gum or I stole a car. I'm a sinner in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't matter if, if, if I have committed murder or I have committed murder in my heart. The idea is that I'm a sinner in the eyes of the Lord. I'm not talking about consequences. I'm talking about understanding her, her position in eternity. She understood. When you and I understand our position in eternity, that you and I are weak vessels, that we can accomplish nothing without God, that there's no way that we get to heaven unless God, there's no way that we spend eternity with God unless the cross, then you and I are like that person that's not going to love much because we don't understand the depth of our sin. But because we understand the depth of our sin, because you know that there is no way that you and I are getting to heaven unless we are forgiven, we're not going to forgive much. And Jesus says it this way. He says, listen, unless you can forgive those that have transgress transgression against you, God can't forgive you. That's how he says it. And the beauty of Scripture is that, is that God is always using the weak things to confound the wise. Look at David and Goliath. David was not supposed to win the battle. David was in no position to beat Goliath. He was, a, he was a teenager. Goliath was a warrior from birth. Goliath was nine feet tall. He was a giant of a man. And, and there was no way that David was going to win. No way. 
But the, the story is that God uses the weak things of this world to defeat the strong things. And David was a weak thing. But because David had his heart turned towards the Lord, there was no way that he was going to lose. There was nothing that Goliath could have done to kill David. There was nothing that the Philistine army could have done to overthrow David. Why? Because God be for him. Oh my goodness, when you understand the concept how God uses weak things to confound the wise, to beat this world and the system of this world, then you understand your position in God. It's amazing. Look at Daniel in the lion's den. There is no way that Daniel, this is an image between man and beast. There is no way that Daniel can defeat the lions. No way. So if you're not familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel is a, is a servant of the Lord, and, and he served Nebuchadnezzar, but, but he was entrapped. And so because he was entrapped as a politician, the punishment of what Daniel did, praying to God, was, was to be thrown in a den of lions. Hungry lions, these lions they would not feed. And so whatever was thrown in the pit, they were going to devour and they thought for sure the people that were against Daniel, the people that, that hated Daniel, the people that thought, like, Daniel is worth nothing. He's a, he's a Hebrew. He's not even a Chaldean. Like, he shouldn't even be part of our, of our community. And they're like, we got Daniel now, so he's going to be thrown in the lion's den. He's going to for sure die. Well, they throw Daniel in the lion's den. He's weak. What happens? Even nature submits to the command of God. We see that with Jesus in the boat. When you understand that God has always used weak things to defeat the strong, you, you, you ought to rejoice. Because he says, Paul says, I want you to think about where you were when you were called. He's setting, he's, setting up the, he's setting up the stage. He says, you were weak. You weren't wise in human standard. You weren't influential. You weren't of, of a noble birth. You were nothing. He says, but God used you to turn Corinth around. He used you to turn your city around. And, and, and it's the same with us. I want you to think about where God, where God found you, what you were doing, where you were, what, what was happening in your life and how God has turned your life around. And maybe your children are saved because of it. Maybe your family is saved because of it. Maybe there's coworkers and people in the city that are going to be saved because of it, because God uses weak things. He uses insignificant things and, 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 and when we realize that that's who we are without Christ my goodness you're going to do amazing things for the kingdom of God amazing things and why does he do this so that no one can boast that no one can boast no one can say the reason I'm so successful is because of who I am no, it's because of Christ. Ephesians 2, 8. If you'd stand to your feet, we're going to close in prayer. I want, I want to end with this verse because I, I think it's a reminder. It's a reminder that there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. It's the cross. 
That's Paul's, that's Paul's foundation as he as we move forward in, in the book of Corinthians that, listen, we're going to have divisions, but there's something that we will never negotiate on. There's something that we will never be divided on, and that's the message of the cross. And he says, he says in Ephesians, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not for yourse- from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ. Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's the cross. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. But once we realize how much we've been forgiven, we love deep. We love deep and we show God extravagant love by the way we live. By the, way, by the way we treat others, by, by the way we come together and become a unified group of people to show God, right? That's what Jesus says. They'll know you're my disciple by your love for one another. We come together and we display that. We display it. Because we realize the cross is the great equalizer. But I am saved. You are saved. Not by works but by grace, through faith, so that we may do good works. We have works to do. We have stuff to do. We have people to save. Come on. We have, as Paul would say, we have, we have to carry around our water bucket and we have to go water some seeds that have been planted or we have to go plant some seeds or we might have to do both. But that's... The point that we come together and we unify our language and we unify our, our, our goals so that we can change the, the atmosphere in this community. That only comes when we realize that it is through Christ that we're transformed.